you know, when you're on a small stream and you and you hook a trout and it's glowing in your hands and it's quivering and you let it go and it seems like a moment a momentary gift because that beautiful thing is gone in a flash, maybe half a second. You follow its shadow across the stones and it disappears into the stream. And you want to shout for joy because it was such a magical moment. And, and when human beings get that intensely emotional about a subject, they want to share it. This is Tom Sutcliffe, author, fly fisherman, artist, and the doyen of South African fly fishing. In this episode, we talk to Tom about his lifelong affair with fly fishing. I'm your host, Gordon van der Spey. Don't panic. This is The Feather Mechanic. I've been reading you since I was 13. I'm 42 now. I know I don't look it, but I am. And, uh, yeah, I've always been captivated and, and motivated and... And, and inspired by what you do. I've, I've followed it my whole life. And actually, it's quite amazing that I can sit here now and talk to you. This is great. Where did it start for you? Where did fly fishing start for you? Okay, maybe before I began, because you began at your age at 42. I'm 80 and I don't look at... Um, <laughs> I look more like 90. But anyway, that's beside the point. Look, you know, it, it's an interesting thing, but I... I as as the world becomes more skilled at identifying chromosomal points uh, and, and markers for tumors like breast tumors and things like that, they'll have a marker for fishing on a chromosome somewhere soon. And you can test your little boy. <laughs> and if he's got the chromosome for fishing, especially fly fishing, you send him to the nearest orphanage <laughs> because it's going to cost you a lot of money and time. <laughs> but no, look, I mean, I, I, I think the, the answer to where and how I started fishing is probably common to virtually every other fly fisherman I know. At one stage in one's life, when you're young and your brain is terribly receptive and you create memories that, in fact, you never forget, You've got to be that certain age, you know, sort of 9, 10, 11, 12. Um, I, I was down on the Moy River when it was going like, uh, it was going like a cross between the Itchen and the Wiley. Beautiful flow, kind of sort of apple green color. And, and he pulled out a hardy rod, a beautiful split cane hardy rod. Jeez, I looked at this thing and thought, I've never seen a rod like that in my life. We used to use bamboo poles and things. And then he caught a few brown trout. And, and you know, I, I just wasn't prepared for, for the electric beauty of those fish, you know. They, they came out um, of, the, of, the, of the water and, and were infinitely brighter than I thought they would be. There was just something about them that was quite intangibly beautiful. And then he put the rod in my hand through the fly line downstream for me and I pulled it back upstream and caught a fish. And then it was, uh, Gordon, I think if you put it between two slices of bread, you could have eaten it as a sandwich. You know what I mean? It was a big fish. <laughs> that big, you know? And I lived on that fish for months, months, months. Um, 
Never got over it. The guy who took me was Willem van der Elft. I've got fond memories of him, and the other day found a photograph of him, which pleased me no end. And then I went back to where I lived in Branson and sat around. We fished in the uh, little Yuxke River down at the bottom of Mate's Plot in uh, Branson, where where I lived. There, there were virtually no houses around Branson in those days. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we, we fished for bass uh, where we could in farm dams. And, and for tilapia in, in the little streams and things like that. But, I mean, I, I had no chance to fly fish. So, 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 so when I was in matric, <clears throat> delightful Afrikaans teacher, teacher we had, Meneer Maynard, uh, sadly uh, died. Uh, we were away with a teacher on, on an extended trip that I, I'll tell you about in a moment. So when, when we got back to school, Mr. Maynard was no longer in our matric class, which was a problem given it, it was going to be matric exams to write in about four or five months, no Afrikaans teacher, and they got a Meneer Greifenberg, who was about seven foot eight, seven foot nine tall, and as wide as a door, and he came up from Serenbosch. Uh, as a young teacher. I think he'd been teaching in, in, in Uppington, but he was a Stellenbosch graduate. And very near when we wrote matric, he said, I've got some slides to show you because you guys are going to be going to university and he has Stellenbosch. And he showed us Stellenbosch and he had a picture. It was taken from the Kutzenberg Bridge, I later discovered, and it was photographed upstream with a light behind him and there was a beautiful st stream coming down. And I said, Meneer, I stop for and I said, follow. Sark the slate. Business closed. I was off to Sinnebosch. Yeah, and, and, and that's what got me there. Trout. You know, and we talked about the chromosomal marker for trout. I mean, I've got it big time and, and never lost it. Still here. And so I went to trout, oh, I went to trout, I went to st <laughs> there's something Freudian in that, but forgive me, but I went to Stellenbosch and, and, uh, and, and literally fished my brain loose for, for a couple of years, failed my second year, seriously, um, and, and made a few good mates in fly fishing who knew as little as I did, but you know, we kind of could throw a fly line downstream and pull a an invicta upstream and so on. Um, and then finally got in with the CPS, met John Beams, um, Mark Bikirith and Tony Biggs, realized there was another spectrum, another dimension to fly fishing that, that I could not have envisaged. It was like discovering how the world began with the Big Bang Theory, you know, bang, and there it is, and the ads explained to you. So I went on a stream and I saw this little dry fly coming down, boom, trout into it, and that was on the picnic uh, beat of uh, the small blow, which we now know as beat two of the small blow, with Mark McCarrick. And my world just changed, man, you know, I mean, <laughs> I became addicted to dry fly fishing um, in, 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 in the true mental illness sense of the word addicted, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I would have sacrificed anything just to get on a stream with a dry flyer. Yeah, and, and that's where it morphed out. You know, eventually after I'd qualified and um, 
And they told me I was a doctor, although I had great difficulty believing that. I must be quite honest with you. But anyway, I decided to go up to where I heard there were some big trout, big brown trout, in rivers and lakes. And and so I did applied for a housemanship at, uh, at Gray's Hospital, Marisburg. Um, got it working between mainly Gray's Hospital, occasionally Edendale Hospital. Wonderful standard of medicine. Even better standard of fly fishing suited me wonderfully. And, and so I was into fly fishing. And, and jeepers, we, we had the world at our feet, you know. There were people uh, that, who were fly fishing, obviously, but not the number uh, of people that we now fortunately get fly fishing. And so you virtually had rivers and dams to yourself in many respects. And, um, yeah, yeah, so in a nutshell, that's where my addiction began. And, uh, and the addiction is still with me. Uh, I'm no different. Who would you say were your, were your early mentors? That's a very easy question to answer. Mark McKerith, uh, with his wonderful casting on his Ritz Parabolic, Super Parabolic Ferio Club Rod. Um, certainly John Beams and Tony Biggs. Tony Biggs because he was um, he was um, a, an extraordinary intuitive, or is, I don't know if he's still fishing, uh, intuitive fly fisher. And, 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 and had his own style of tying flies. Um, from where the rab evolved, that variant type of fly. John Beams, who has to be the best mind that I have personally had dealings with, given his level of education. So I've met greater minds in my life, but no greater mind than John's, given that as a, as a war child, he was shipped out of England to New Zealand. And I, I guess he probably had a standard seven, as we would know it now, or a standard eight or whatever. But, I mean, you, the chap was was intelligent beyond words and lovely to be with because you couldn't settle down. He, he would challenge you. So if you said, you know, I, I think it's best to fish a nymph under the bank in the Moy River, he'd say, why? And, and you'd have to get your story right. You'd have to know your apples. Very bright. Um, very into chess, um, and and a super chess player. I mean, you know, I lost to him with monotonous regularity. At one stage, in fact, I thought I was going to win a game, and I said, "John, I'm going to I'm going to double or quits this bet." He said, "Right, you on?" So I said, "Okay, so for a million rand." So I played him and lost. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote a check for a million rand to John Beams. John Beams, one million rand. He took it to Barclays Bank in those days. And the lady behind the counter, sort of her eyeballs widened like this. And she said, excuse me a moment, sir. And the next thing she came back with the manager and she said, that particular client has not got these funds available. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I said, what a joke, a million bloody rand in those days was like... A billion now, you know, it's put me in the Elon Musk class. <laughs> but uh, any, any, anyway, so, so John Beam had a great influence on my life. 
When I think of my fishing in Natal, John had a massive influence on me. His, his approach to rivers, rivers was so dynamically different to fishing with 90% of the people I knew. Um, he um, had a, he, he just had a, uh, he, well, first of all, he had a lovely cast. Uh, not the, the best caster you ever met, but he had an ability to be a fearless caster. Now, that's a very important thing. But a lot of people are fearsome casters. So if there was a bush on the far bank and he thought it was a trout under it, he'd put the fly straight under the bush. And I'd never do that. Well, not never, but I think what a risky thing to do. I'll hang my fly up and would usually. So he was a fearless caster. And, and he would do that not once, but three or four times. And invariably catch a fish. A fierce competitor. As a group of guys fishing with him, we learned quickly to lie when we got back to the car. So if he said, how many fish you catch? And I caught five, I'd say three. Um, in case he caught less than I did. Because if he caught less than I did, then he wouldn't speak to you for a week, you see. So, <laughs> so he became consummate liars. <laughs> and we learned quickly to say... First, sir. Hi, John. What did you catch? <laughs> Eight. No, oh, no, dear. I didn't do so well. Got four, you know. <laughs> Hell of a battle. Yeah, anyway, but, but what a lovely guy. And I, I missed him. And, and you know, I I was his doctor, in, 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 in fact. And, uh, and did uh, a very nice interview with him uh, in 1984. It's about three months before he died. And, and, um, and and that's now on the TCFF website available for viewers if they want to watch it. Um, they get a shock when they see me because I'm young, handsome <laughs> guy, not a geriatric. <laughs> anyway, but 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 it's a lovely interview and it gives you an idea about his thinking. And if one realizes that he was in on very high doses of cortisone. Um, very bloated face, that despite all of this and the radiation to his head, and he was still thinking clearly. It's wonderful. But it's a long way around telling you where I've come from in fly fishing, but, you know, that's, that's the shortened version. <laughs> I've always been intrigued. Okay, so what I'm... So you were a medical doctor. Yes. Okay. But to me, you were never a medical doctor. Okay, you think I forged my degree? No, no, I don't no. think you forged your, your <laughs> yeah. degree, although I'm wondering now. Yeah. But to me, you were always an artist. Mm. As, as, a, as a young boy, yeah. reading, reading about you and reading the things you wrote and looking at you, the images you drew, drew and all of that, in my head, Tom Sutcliffe was first and foremost the artist. Mm. Have you always been drawing? Where, how did that come mm. about? It's a very interesting question. And incidentally, there's a kind of synergy there between the medical profession and art, which I'll come to you and come to back back to you in a moment. But yeah, so I grew up in a in a house where my father was a painter. He was an engineer who was very keen on on collecting art and on on doing oil painting himself. So I grew up in a house like that. He used to come home and hide paintings from my mother. 
because she used to say, if you bring another pony home, I'm going to divorce you. <laughs> so <laughs> so we, I used to open a cupboard and a whole lot of paintings would fall on my head. You know, and w when I think back on it now, they were not minor artists, they were major. There was Tita Fasciotti, Piet van Heerden, Gregoire Buensaya, Terence McCall, Strat Caldecott. Wonderful collection of artists. I mean, he could pick them. So so I, I had art, in, and he could draw very well, and I had art in me, and so, and, and so I was lucky with a gift from God of that ability to, to draw. And, and I just have the greatest pleasure in drawing. It gives me peace of mind. I'm sure you experience much the same. Your therapy. drawings are it's beautiful. Therapy. It's therapy. And, and um, I love it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm drawing in pastel and painting in watercolor a lot now on, for commissions that people want. Um, and, and to me, although I'm getting paid for it, it's not, and I'm doing it, it's not actually work. And I, I want, whoever said, look, I want my husband to have a brown trout over the Bushman's River. I want him, I want to knock his socks off with a brown trout. I want him to go into his study and look at that brown trout and just think of the berg and just escape from the boardroom, you know. And the traffic lights, and uh, and the speed cops, and uh, all the. So you never you never studied fine art. No, no, no. no. I always I always thought no. that somewhere in the background you might have studied fine art and never told anyone. No. Oh no no I have never studied fine art. I mean I've said, I've got a lot of books on art here. I've read the technical aspects of art. They come back to the synergy in in, in art and medicine. Initially, I was in general practice, and 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 it's science to some degree, but it's art to a large degree. It's the art of seeing a patient walk through the door and saying, that guy's sick. Don't know how or where or what, but I know you're sick. It's seeing a mother walk through the door and saying, this lady is bullshitting me, she is the victim of, of, of abuse, physical abuse. Uh, it was the art of reassuring parents with very sick children. Uh, it was the art of deciding in the middle of the night when somebody was phoning you, whether you got up out of bed at three in the morning and went to see them on the other side of town or not. Um, and, and it was the art of communication and, and, and doing your best to ease a person's mind. It was, there was a lot of art in medicine. And, and it's sad to my mind that to this day, no book has appeared with the title of The Art of Medicine. All the very scientific stuff. We've got cupboards full of that, um, bookshelves full of that. But no, The Art of Medicine. Some people had it and some people didn't. We had a few partners who didn't have it, and we got rid of them because they were no good. And 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 so yeah, there is a synergy between my art and my medicine. And um, yeah, I it, it what what interests me most is that the two devotions of my life, with my family set aside, obviously, 
because I get divorced at the that stage of my life now. <laughs> my family sort of side. The two devotions of my life have been art and trout and writing about largely trout, some extent yellowfish, which I think are marvelous. But the whole intention of both the art and the writing is to convey to you part of what I see as a gorgeously rich tapestry. You know, when you run a small stream and you, and you hook a trout and it's glowing in your hands and it's quivering and you let it go and it seems like a, moment, a momentary gift because that beautiful thing is gone in a flash, maybe half a second. You follow its shadow across the stones and it disappears into the stream. And you want to shout for joy because it was such a magical moment. And, and when human beings get that intensely emotional about a subject, they want to share it. That, that's a common denominator in life, I think. And so what's, what's driven me is my great... The great experiences I've had of pure joy, of pure beauty. Um, Funny you should say that, because I've often thought to myself, you know, in our lives, we kind of think, if I can just do that, my life will be complete. And then you sit after a day on a stream, and you've had a good session, and you sit there and you think to yourself, but my life is complete. Yes. This, it doesn't get better than this. No. Nothing you can do to no. me now can make this moment better. Yes. If you gave me five million rand, it wouldn't yeah. make it better. Yeah. And then you kind of realize yeah. Yeah. that it's there for you already. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're kind of all chasing this yeah. thing. Yeah. And why? Mm. Mm. Moments of perfection are there to be had. And it's like kind of when you, you, you make yourself available to them... Mm. When you sit, my wife asked me the other day, she said, where are you closest to God? Mm. I said, when I'm sitting on a mountain after a day's fishing. Yeah. I can't say I'm, I'm a, because that is where everything, where it makes sense. Mm. You know, you often look at the world and you think, none of this makes any mm. sense. Mm. Why? What's the point? Mm. Can't the sun mm. just fry us and be done? Mm. Mm. But there are moments that make sense. But you, I'm, I'm very glad that you mentioned this because I'm now going to give you an instruction. Mm. You're now going to go and read the forward and the prologue mm. to a book by Harry Middleton mm. called The Earth is Enough, mm. where he describes exactly what you're saying now mm. in the most beautiful words possible and the forward is written uh, by a man who understands that feeling and who writes one of the loveliest forwards I've ever written for a book in my life. So, so yeah, Harry Middleton uh, endorses exactly what you say. Um, it, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not so much about catching the trout but enjoying not the moment but the moments that precede it 
mm. and anteceded mm. um, and the moment itself. And when you get back to your car or your truck or whatever you've got and you're having a coffee or you're having a, a, a tot of uh, small blast single malt, whatever it might be, one could almost get into a state of a Zen-like state of um, inner tranquility and peace, and and it's to convey that, which is very difficult. It's not it's not easy to do. Um, it's not easy to do. It's it's the very opposite, and I I I don't want to be judged in terms of my views on competitive fly fishing. But it's the very opposite of the intentions between the two aspects of this lovely sport. Um, we're catching the fish is actually the objective in competitive angling, and it become an, becomes a numbers game. And and the reverse, where and uh, one should be careful not to wear a a mantle of superiority here because it isn't it is simply well it's simply an emotional issue um, where I, when I'm on a mountain stream I want to be alone with the stream and the trout and and that's enough for me um, and the last thing that I want is somebody counting the fish I caught or was stalking behind me to see that I don't put on three flies or whatever the rules of this game may be. So, 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 Gordon, I think you and I are probably on exactly the same page where that is concerned. Okay, so the thing I've always noticed about you, and I've learnt from you, because like, I haven't just been reading your stuff, I've been learning and watching what you do mm. and what you don't do and what you say and what you don't say. You've always been extremely clever with words. Mm. Um, and your work is extremely layered. Mm. When I read something you've written, there are layers to it. It's, it's so intelligent. It's so clever. Mm. It's so rich. Where did... Because you're a storyteller, whether, whether you're painting or drawing or writing, you are a fantastic storyteller. You're an artist. How did that develop? How did the writing develop? Because I must tell you, if you lived in America, mm. you wouldn't have time to do medicine because you'd only write. Mm. You are right up there mm. with Girach. You, you, do you understand? It's, it's, it's so good. Where did, how did that develop for you? How did the writing develop? Okay, before we go there, just I just want to say, you know, thank you for um, what are very kind words. And, and, and one writes and one tries one's best at whether you're doing art or writing. And, and you get very little feedback. So... You exist in, a, unfortunately, in a sort of vacuum outside of moments like yours now and, and, and your friends who phone you up and say, I, I like this chapter or I enjoyed that, you know. Um, so thank you for that. Um, so so I, I, 
never saw myself as a writer, but I used to fish with a chap called um, Brian Macmillan, who was um, the editor of the Mercury newspaper in Durban. And we were fishing on the Moy one day and walking back, and he said, won't you write me a Saturday article? And I said, listen, I can't write a telegram, you know. I mean, I, I can write a prescription for penicillin, but that's as far as it goes. But he said, just what you've said to me now is writing. Why don't you just write like what you've just told me now? That you write prescriptions for penicillin, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and write like that. So I said, okay. And, and, and then I, I started, and uh, it was a, a weekly column. I used to write it in pencil on a piece of paper. On a Thursday and a Friday, that guy would come and collect it and would go down to Durban and they would edit it, and Saturday it was in the press. And uh, to my amazement, I find that Macmillan was right, that if you wrote and freed your mind totally, just let your mind go loose um, and, and, and write exactly as I'm talking to you now, I mean, it's no great intelligence in here that allows me to write like I write, you know. I mean, I was, I was not the best medical student you ever saw, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely down there. But, uh, but, but, but um, yeah, I, I, again, I think there one's got to be careful with your writing. You, you, you cannot but be honest. And, and when you start to layer sunsets on streams and swallows flying and rainbows forming, you've got to watch out. This is often not the real world you're writing about. If you can write about the real world with honesty, then I think you, anyone can write well. And that's the biggest tip I got for me. Yeah. Right there. I once said to you, Tom, you know, I'm not really a writer. Yeah. And you said to me, neither was I. It yeah. doesn't matter. Just speak. Yeah. Use your voice. Yeah. And that's an important thing. Absolutely. That's what we want to hear from and you. And you've got to be true about that, yeah. honest. You've got to respect that voice of yours. Yeah. And you've got yeah. to back it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, when, when you give people a manuscript yeah. or whatever, they're going to give you a lot of notes. Yeah. And mm. you have got to be strong enough yeah. and own you enough mm. to be able to say, you know what, I think you're wrong. I think I'm going to stick with what yeah. I'm doing in this particular moment. Yeah. Someone once said to me, you can't, you can't write all the South African slang. No yeah. one's going to get it. The internationals will not get yeah. it. Yeah. I said, I don't care. Yeah. We can make a, 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 a sort of a convention to explain it to them. Yeah. But when an American writes a book, yeah. they're not worried about we, what we're going to get not going to get. They write according to what... Yeah. They understand what, what's their truth. Yeah, yeah. And that is the way it's got to be. Yeah, absolutely. So, right. so, so you shouldn't tailor make, yeah. you know, tell the story. Tell the story. And, and if, you, if there are parts of that story that your audience won't understand, yeah. put them in the loop. Yeah. And above all, don't be shy. Don't be intimidated. Uh, no matter what your past mark in English was in matric, I couldn't worry. That's irrelevant. What I'm looking for is what did you experience in, in your body, in your mind, 
and 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 what did you experience honestly and tell that to me and whatever that is i can guarantee you it's going to make good reading better reading than a constructed essay mm. the way you think other people would like to to hear about your days fishing that doesn't work because a lot of people when they yeah. write yeah. it's not them speaking it's not it's them and, and you know how easy it is to see through that gordon it is so easy to see through that and 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 um you know people just know and that is why the great writers are great writers if you take a person like Haig brown um writing about his salmon fishing in 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 um in canada mm-hmm. on the west coast and then or vancouver on on the on the island where a lot, lot of uh, sam, um salmon probably yes salmon and 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 steelhead streams and he wrote about them with such authenticity and such simplicity because we don't need big words when we're reading books you know mm. and uh, we need simple words we need we need to cut to the chase and the answer to the writing if you want to to my mind find out what good writing is all about is to read hemingway uh nick lyons described hemingway's writing as crisp and athletic athletic i love it isn't it lovely and you know hemingway would not put one word down that wasn't totally relevant so um so one will learn a lot from the great writers going back and reading them or and and you and I are going to differ on who is a great writer and who isn't that doesn't matter um and 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 then we're going to divide what we read what we read and what we write into two big categories the teaching category and the storytelling category and and I've gone on this side of the storytelling category And ah, but you know, no, no, you you've got done both. Yes, I tried to weave in. No, well, this is what I loved about hunting yeah. trout. Hunting yeah. trout for me was was one of the best things I've ever read. Yeah. And the thing I liked about it was when when I was in acting school, they said art has two functions or two roles. Aristotle said this: art is there to instruct. or to delight. Oh. Now, what you do is you tell us the story, weave the content in the story. So it's not cold. Yeah. It's it and you remember things way way more clearly when it's not packaged as yeah. a dead yeah. cold factual Factual's thing, thing, you know. A to Z. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I I follow what you mean, and 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 I and and if one can weave that in to your writing without being too didactic and, and too this is my way, do it my way kind of thing, because I don't think that exists. Um, I, I think fly fishing is happily one of those endeavors where there are many ways that you can be totally right, and. Um, So yeah you know, I'm I'm not going to say you know worry about the didactics of fly fishing I'm going to worry about uh, more as a writer in my case because other people write beautifully with different objectives like uh, 
Schweibert wrote his two-volume trout with a totally different objective. He wanted a history of fly fishing and a record of fly fishing, both in tackle, science, and act the activity itself. And it's cold reading, mm. not warm. Whereas Robert Trevor wanted to just expose his love of the sport. And he wrote with great warmth. I mean, wonderful warmth. Um, um, Trout Magic and Trout Madness, and, and, and there are other books of, of his. Anatomy of a Murder was a world bestseller, and that allowed him to retire as a Supreme Court judge in America. And of course, uh, he then went fishing the rest of his life, just brook trout fishing, <laughs> said goodbye to the court, wrote Testament of a Fisherman, which I'm sure you've read, uh, which begins, I love to fish in the environments where trout are, which are invariably beautiful, and hate the environments where crowds of people are, which are invariably ugly. Mm. And it goes on. And it's the loveliest piece of writing that helps to explain to our non-fishing friends the nature of our madness mm. Mm. and why we are so crazy without actually being in a mental home, you know? So you start writing for the newspaper. How do you get to the point where you actually write a book? How did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're not going to believe this, but this is actually a fact. I mean, I came home here. My computer was in this room. And I had left the Department of Health. And um, well, I was about to leave the Department of Health. And it was a very, very traumatic time. Um, I was the superintendent general of uh, the premier's office, having come down or retired from health and then asked to stay on as the premier and director general's advisor. I had a very, very senior post and then discovered that the guy that I worked for, uh, uh, who was a former spy boss, Neil Bonnard, was, was, had actually built a, a bunker underneath my office where they were listening to, with, um, with sound recording devices, listening to politicians, conversations. Bugging is the word. I didn't know a thing about this. I mean... And when I heard about it, you know, when it, it, it was rather like hearing that Hansi Cronier was taking bets on cricket matches. I didn't believe that. It was bullshit. And when they said to me, you know, this boss of yours got a bunker under your thing, I thought it was bullshit. Anyway, th that was just a major ontploffen. Um, and um, uh, we we had um, a very, very bad time with national intelligence wandering around and God knows what. So I was then beyond retirement age and then I took retirement. Um, but before that, I used to get home here and think, where would I just love to be now on the Trout Street? And, and, and I'd been up to, uh, I'd been up to Barclay East a number of times with Eddie and I started thinking more and more of those trips and trying to persuade Eddie to come back on another. And in the end, I thought, you know, that was probably the most perfect time in my life. And 
and and I just thought to myself one evening sitting here on the on that computer and, and just thought hell you know I'm going through all of this bloody turmoil at the moment what eases my mind and that is just writing as if I was visiting Basi Forslu at Birkhall and sitting knee-deep in newspapers with Eddie Herbst talking to me about the various stages in the life cycle of the of the of the butterfly or the caddisfly or whatever it is. And I began writing, yeah, in the evenings. I would write from about just after dinner till about midnight. Um and then I carried on, on writing and, and eventually I mean, people think you sit down and write a book, you don't at all. Mm. So after three years of going back and forward and uh, hunting, a little less than three years, Hunting Trout went to the publisher um, um, who accepted it. And that was because the publisher was me. Uh, so I, I read my manuscript. <laughs> I wrote a letter to myself and said, yes, we'll publish this. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's interesting. You know, you think, well, what, maybe if I'd sent that manuscript to Strake or one of them, just said, look, this guy's crazy. Put him on the back shelf and pretend he doesn't exist. <laughs> um, yeah, that's how Hunting Trout came about. So it was a lot of my soul in it. It was a very, very trying time of my life. So writing's always been therapy for you. Very much therapy. Yeah. It's like a way of escaping yeah. the turmoil you find yourself in. Mm. My way with the trout was your first book, am I right? Yes. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, that was Macmillan, the editor of Mercury magazine. Mm -hmm. He telling me to write for the Mercury, uh, Mercury newspaper, write me a weekly column. Mm. And those were just weekly columns. Yeah. And uh, in fact, I got a whole bunch of them as a gift the other day from a mother who collected them for her son and arrived with every single one in order from the day that I first wrote it. It was quite amazing to see it. And he said, look, I'm not going to do anything with this. You have this. I don't know what to do with it either. I mean, it's... So, that's how... And Now, the nice thing about my, my way with Trout was this. Look, now this... And you've got to understand, I'm going to just pull down my mask of false modesty for a moment and tell you that I came from the small blow, which is quick, fast water, dry fly. Occasional upstream nymph, but we didn't really know what we were doing with an upstream nymph. Yes, we used it and we caught a few fish. I came to, to do my housemanship in Peter Maritzburg and started to fish rivers like the Umgani and the Moy and the Little Moy and so on and thought, as I got to the banks of these things, I would put on a dry fly. And having come there with one or two local keen residents uh, who became friends of mine, people like Hugh Huntley, Taffy Walters and so on, they said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm fishing a dry fly to, this, to that bank. And they said, look, you know, when did you last see your doctor? You you were right. <laughs> <laughs> and then, bang, into a two-pound brown trout. I remember that fish actually very well. Two-pound brown trout. Right under Hugh Huntley's nose on the Mgani. On a Wickham's fancy. 
So 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 suddenly everybody switched and faced the other way around, upstream drive line. And it was as if I was like a, one of Christ's gospels sent to promote the word <laughs> to to a, a backward Natal. <laughs> Which wasn't the case, but anyway, so and drum beams, of course, then came up, and and drum beams and I just really had a full go at them with the dry flow and rivers and and, and learnt nymphing techniques, and then suddenly realised one day, sitting in a car with the windscreen wipers going, watching a pond, and seeing trout rise on this pond, I said, John, what are we doing here? Why don't we dry fly in this little water? It's a discovery, soaking wet. One fly out, boom, straight in. And dry fly on still waters began to take on um, in, in, in Natal. Just look, it's difficult to explain. So, so I'm not, I'm not suggesting we were messiahs. Only. We just came from a different world. We came from a world where we were so used to dry fly on streams that we couldn't understand that you could still sell Connemaras and black. And, and, and thunder and lightnings and, and, and invictors in a fly tackle shop and not stock flies like Adams or or or, or, or Rabs or what it, whatever it was. Um, but soon kings changed their style. They started importing finer nylons. They started importing dry flies. Uh, there were no, to my mind, no commercial ties. I used to tie dry flies for my friends like Taffy Walters. Um, and and um, but otherwise there was no source of dry flies really, other than here in the Cape at Lemkus and sports shops like that. But it was great fun, and you know that that, that just saw all this lovely wave of change come into fly fishing. Did did that influence you guys opening the fly fishermen? Not really. I didn't want to open the flash. I mean, I thought of it. I was approached by John Robinson and Sean Larkin and Roger Bart. Um, and they said, would you like to be a partner? So I, it, I, I was not in any way, um, in any way an instigator in the, for, in, in, in the, in the formation of, of the flash itself. I agreed to become a partner simply because it brought me closer to fly fishing and and then um and then enjoyed the wider exposure it gave me to various tackle from around the world like Scott Orvis Thomas and Thomas and people like that we started to investigate them as a shop because of their potential to sell in South Africa uh, it was at the time, if you remember, when uh, 1976, around about when the first graphite flaws appeared. Um, and, and, I mean, that was just like, you know, um, a moment in time that no one will forget when you picked up, you dropped your glass fiber jet and you picked up a limestone um, graphite rod and it was like a trip into a new world. Um, so it's a marvelous time to to live through, uh, but the shop, that's an event I don't think much about, because I don't like selling tackle to anyone. Mm. Frankly, I'd rather a guy came in, 
especially if they were little schoolboys and they wanted some bloody dubbing, I'd just say, listen, yeah, stick it in your pocket and push off. <laughs> and, <laughs> and by the way, he has tin hooks, you know. Um, so I was not in any way into fly fishing in business sense at all. Well, look, that shop meant more than, than just a, a, a place where people could get tackle from. I, I've travelled a lot across this country and the guys used to tell me how after work they would all gather there. Yes. It, would, yeah. it would be like a, like, yeah. almost like instead of going to the pub, people would go to the fly shop. And how very often mm. at the last minute people would say, hey, let's go fishing right now. Yeah. And people would just like go off. And the guy's wife doesn't even know he's going fishing. No, I don't have my rod yet. No, don't worry. You can use my spare rod. Poof. Yeah. And off they go. And the oak doesn't rock up home. Yeah. It's like, and that sort of thing used to happen. Not like now and then. This is regular events. Yeah. Um, tell me a bit about Hooks and Bullets. Hooks and Bullets. Well, okay. He, so Hooks and Bullets is H.B. Huntley. Um, and uh, Hugh is, was his name. And so when I had been in Maritzburg for about three or four months, you know, and wanted to get around and expand my horizons, I went into King Sports where and there was a man called Bill Wasling working behind the fly fishing counter, one of the loveliest men you've ever met. And I said to him, listen, Bill, if you had to say who were the two most closely certifiable fly fishermen in this town, who would you say they are? And he said, that's easy. Tuffy Walters and H.B. Huntley. He said, Allah is mull. Mull. So I got in my car. I got their addresses from him. Or maybe from the telephone book. I can't remember. I drove up the drive. Very nice house. Looking out over the hills. Tuffy Walters' house. Knocked on the door. And said, uh, this is who I am. And he said, oh, I'm... Never heard of you, but you're welcome to come and have a cup of coffee. And I said, no, I came here to talk trout fishing. Oh, he said, then you are definitely welcome. <laughs> and I, I left with a lot of, uh, I left with a lot of fly tying material as a gift. And he became a lifelong friend and patient. Now, the interesting one was Hugh Huntley, because he was quite a distant man. You know, you didn't just walk up to Hugh Huntley. Um, he... Uh, he was quite private. Um, very, very gifted fly tire. Then you would have loved him. And you and he would have gone on like a house on fire. Um, and it was at night and I had a, a long day in practice. And you know, I thought, well, I'm on my way home. I'm going to see Hugh Huntley. So I knocked on his door, you know, kind of at night. Now, that's the last thing you want to hear. And you're sitting down for supper and some idiot knocks on your door at seven o'clock. And you know, you, you want to actually punch him rather than greet him, but the door opens just so much. And a voice, and a, this face looks at me and he said, Yes. And I said, Are you Mr. Huntley? He said, Yes. I said, Do you tie flies? He said, Yes. I said, I'm very keen on fly tying. He looked at me for a long moment and said, I think you'd better come in. So I went in. And he and I tied flies, I think, every Wednesday evening 
if I wasn't on call. Maybe for 20 years. Uh, no, maybe not as long as that. But anyway, look, it seemed like 20 years. We'd go down to his place. He'd set up the vice and we'd say, right, we're going to tie DDD today. We're going to try and perfect uh, um, a Humphrey or whatever. Whatever we... Or we just sat and tied. Yeah. With great regularity. I learned so much about flight tying from him. And... Um, and that was H.B. H.B. Hunty, the very, very keen shot with bird wing shooting, um, and and so we did shoot um, uh, red wings and grey wings and and uh, um, quail and guinea fowl. But in the end, I gave that up. I didn't like killing things, so I gave that up. Um, but, but, I mean, a very interesting, very gifted fly fisher. Very, very gifted fly tire. Um, very private man. Difficult to get to know. Uh, there were a few moments with Hugh Hunty that were wonderful. We were at a, we were at a, a clinic. And uh, he was talking about stillwater fly fishing. And he was talking about, you know, the only fly you need is probably a red-eyed damsel nymph, which was his fly. And he showed the fly and said, now this is why this is probably the only fly you need. And some young schoolboy put up his hand and he said, yeah. He said, Mr. Huntley, what if the trout don't like the red-eyed damsel? He said, you said, then they can go without. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely stuff, man. Yeah. One of the guys was telling me how you Huntley used to, when he, when he tied peacock woolly worms, he used to take the piece of red wool and stretch it out until it broke and then he'd tie in the tail. And the one day Hugh was sitting there stretching this piece of wool and this guy thought he was battling to break it. So this guy took his scissors and just cut it. And you went... Lost his shirt with a guy yeah, and said, Laddie, have you ever seen an insect with a square butt? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And that's how, that's how they remembered. Yeah, he was Knorach, apparently. He, was, he yeah. was a prickly pear. Very much a prickly pear. He yeah. was difficult. No, no, very difficult. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're in a float tube next together uh, and your fly landed near his tube, you say, listen, this is a big lake. Why do you want to fish for the trout underneath my float tube? You know, there are a lot of trout over there. So, so he uh, was a man of defined, um, uh, defined thoughts about territory and, uh, and 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 fly pattern and style and had very defined thoughts. Very sadly, you know, I mean, one of the tragedies of the old dam was that uh, he was up there in a float tube, and his brother and a friend were in a. A boat, and the boat turned over, and his brother was in Wellington uh, boots and drowned in the old um, uh, Mick Hunty, lovely guy. Um, and I think uh, Hugh was very shaken about that, and I remember at the time him not not fishing up in the Intrazon for months, if not years, yeah, after his brother drowned. 
I, I heard a story of, there was a guy, Natal Hilton, also one of the old timers, and he was on his float tube, and uh, he used to take naps on his float tube while he was fishing. And the one day, and they were used to Hilton taking naps, but the one day the float tube floated into the, into the reeds, and they thought, that's odd, he normally wakes up and paddles mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. He had passed on while fishing. What? Yeah, their day ended with an ambulance coming out to the farm. Oh, no. Getting healed. No, but I thought to myself. Well, that's amazing. No, that's great. How oh, else do you want to go? Yeah, I don't know. Exactly. This guy yeah. passed away fishing. Yeah. This yeah. is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely right. Because I'd seen him the week before. I'd, I'd fished with Hilton. Yeah. Uh, he was the last guy of the river. He was old. And I fished with him. At where was it? Unkumas, the yeah. Unkumas River for Natal Scalies. Yeah, this yeah. was in the dead of winter. And I thought yeah. to myself, this old guy is amazing. He yeah. fishes harder than the twenty-year-olds. Yeah. Mm. He was yeah. like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Man, oh man. So you can't write us old geriatrics off, eh? No, you know what? So okay, so this is the thing. I don't see. Old people as geriatrics. What I find sad is that young people think they own the world. They often don't realize that the very foundations that they are standing on were put in place by other people. But maybe that's a condition of youth. You think you know everything, but you actually don't. You know, people don't realize the the steps that have been built that they are stepping on, they, they, they are unaware. I, I, like, I, I, I like what you're saying. Uh, not that I seek accreditation simply because I'm old, but I, I begin to understand the world a little better since I've got old and since, you know, if I've got to look at the, at the, at the chance of falling off my perch, um, getting closer and closer. Um, and, and it makes you, I think, reflect more in a philosophical way about, um, about what or what isn't important in life. And what isn't important to me anymore is the rigid beliefs that I wanted to visit on everybody when I was 30. Mm. Because I thought it was important they should know what I thought about Mao Tse so, mm. uh, or whatever movement in the IRA. Um, and and I, I don't blame young people for for accepting what is put before them, uh, for not not putting a lot of store by by the people who've in a sense paved the way um, to what they're doing. Because they're young and, and they're in a world now which is totally different to any world we ever expected when we were their age, but they're now in a world of instant gratification. Mm. You know, you pick up a, a cell phone and the world is at your feet. Now, that's a pretty new thing, you know. Um, that, is, that is a new thing. So they live in a totally different world to the one we lived in where we waited day after day for the latest fly fishing or fly rod and reel to come out. Now they just pick up a phone, press a button, 
and they've got a choice of 20 if they can wade through the adverts without going mad. And so the the world has actually changed and it's, it's come to them, as it were, not for a hamburger that we waited for, for days on end, but as a bloody banquet in a hall where they walk through the front door and can eat their heads off mm. for the next few hours. The, the world has changed in that way. And, and I don't think, and I understand why, that perhaps a, I don't think a lot of young people have got too much time for the history and tradition of the sport. Um, but what worries me more than anything else is that they, they, they develop the art of finding time for themselves and for their relationship with what they're doing in fly fishing, whether that's saltwater, yellowfish, doesn't matter, uh, or trout, and the, uh, the, the environment, um, and a, a process that I've described as mindfulness, which is not my term, it's, a, it's in fact now used psychiatrically. Mindfulness is a, a state where, where y you can separate yourself from the world for a moment and live in that moment without trying to predetermine how that moment should or should not turn out. So in the very simplest terms, and you will have seen this, if you're in a car and you've got a packet of bultong here and you're driving up to go and fish at Highland Lodge, your hand will go in and out of that bultong bag until you get to Highland Lodge. Mm -hmm. And every bit of bultong that you eat is probably not registering on your brain. It's satisfying some inner desire for something you know that is there. But if you were to stop the car, deliberately wait for half an hour and then say, okay, I am now going to eat this piece of biltong. I'm going to savor it, enjoy it, and I'm going to live in that moment. Uh, we don't do that enough anymore. So we want, we, we want more to be gratified in, in a way that is more instantaneous and in a way that is adequately abundant. Now, we, we, we've lost the, the plot a little bit when it comes to the fact that the world is not a smooth place. Uh, it's not a smooth runway. It's quite a bumpy runway. And the fact is that you're going to go to a lake and you're going to have a really crap day. Um, and you're going to take nothing away from the day, which is sad. Because there's been a lot that you've missed the enjoyment of, outside of the fact that you didn't catch trout. What is your philosophy in terms of fly design? That's a very interesting question. You know, that's like the sort of question you don't want to get in your final year medicine, you know, in your... In your in your in your medicine or surgery oral, um, it's my philosophy about flies. And embrace yourself now, because you need another three hours here with me. But no, but, don't do that. No, but 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 I'll but but I'll I'll be respectful of your time. 
is that they are about impressionism. And and much as the impressionist artists, the Monos, the Monos, the Renoirs, the Gogons, impressed us with their with their art, uh, but when it came out, they were shunned as being certifiably insane because they were not painting with great realism. So I, I, I have come to believe that Atrat has only so much cognitive capacity, the ability to think, look, understand, interpret and respond. And if he takes too long about it, he's going to be dead. So he's an opportunist to survive. So he looked for impressions. So I, I don't think your fly needs to have four legs because the, or, or, or because the fly you imitate has got four legs, because trout probably can't count. At least I've not read a thesis where they've proven that they say that trout can count. And when they look at Juniper and say, well, it's got four tails, that must be an imposter. I don't buy that. So they're looking, they're looking, but, but, but if you take a tail of a, of a nymph and you look at it, it is febrile, um, thin, febrile, sparse in the extreme, in that there are either two, if it's a mayfly, two tails or three tails, and that's it. Um, and, and yet when you buy a shop-bought fly, there's a cigar-shaped protrusion of densely packed fibre, a heckle, to form the tail. That, I think, is probably a questionable or doubtful attribute on any fly at all. Um, it is going to lose the value of movement. It's going to lose the value of that chart having a, a moment in time to make an impressionistic judgment and take your fly or not. And if you do that to the tail, you do that to the abdomen, you do that to the thorax, and you put that all together and over-accentuate all those things, you've stuffed that pattern up. Then it's not going to work for my money as well as if you impressionistically got right the basic aspects of your fly. Now, th this is something that you do, Gordon, better than anybody else I've ever met, but with supreme neatness. Now, that, to my mind, satisfies the art of fly tying, not necessarily the desire of the trout for that fly. And I think both are very credible attributes to have in your in your time. Don't forget fly tying is a hobby in itself. And 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 it has all the meaningful roles to play that we've spoken about for the last twenty hours on trout fishing and trout and, and yellowfish or GTs or whatever you go for, the things that float your boat. And fly tying becomes an art which in terms of the endeavor itself is enough to itself and and that is so important um, and and people lose 
maybe some people lose the the value of that or the insight that that is available in fly tying that it is a pastime not just a means to an end in itself where you can strive for better perfection or or not depending on your persuasion look it depends what you're doing eh? yeah. it, if i'm the way i tie when i'm tying a fly to catch a fish with mm. is very different to the way i'll approach say a jock scott Oh yeah, yeah. So, so it's got to do with context, mm, mm. you know. It's it's kind of like when I walk into a church, I don't say fuck, but like when I'm in the yeah. pub, I will. Mm. It's it's got to do with a, it's a contextual thing, eh? Absolutely. So so the box I fish with yeah. looks totally shit. Like you cannot believe it. People people go what? They I, I, they kind of like look at the box and they it, they're disappointed. And and kind of when you give them a fly, you give them the good one. Yes. You think I'll fish the shit one? Good it's one. fine. Yeah. <laughs> but you you refer to that to a certain extent. It would I know, you know I thought very nice way in your articles on um, the Sutu trout and 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 the flies that one uses in 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 that and the fly that I think Tim Ralston gave you or you uh, uh, vice versa you gave Tim Ralston. I'm not not sure which replied. Um, but 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 I remember fishing with you one day, and we were on the Yester River, the Upper Yester River, um, and um, you said to me, "We came to a nice run there with stick." I've actually got a photograph of it on my computer. There was a sticky uh, bank, a sticky by that I meant, don't mean toffee sticky. I mean full of sticks. A woody bank is probably the better word for it. It was a woody bank, and <clears throat> you said uh, to me, um, this bank with deep water alongside it, that's a lovely sort of dark color. You can see the dip and the wood. You said to me, we want a big fly here that floats well. What have you got? And you looked at my fly box, and you scratched your bloody head, and you shook your head. And you hauled out of your fly box, I think, a hopper that was big. And I remember you taking that hopper and tying it on your leader and then doing this with it. In other words, moving your forefinger and thumb over it to give it a look like it had been in a street fight in Chicago, you know, <laughs> and catching a fish on it. Do you remember that, that fish at all? And if you don't, I've got a photograph of it and of you fishing that run. I don't remember it. You know what I'm finding? My memory's going to shit. Yeah. And this is, I'm 42. I don't know how you remember all this, Guck. I, I don't know. I, I do remember it. Just bless the fact that my head works. Um, but, but, you know, recently after our cancer, real respective cancer diagnosis, Steve, Steve um, Boschoff and I decided, no, no, stuff this. Uh, whatever the diagnosis, we're going fishing. And we're going to go, what's more, into the mountains and into the back end of the mountains, you know, and uh, the rivers like this, Swift and, and, and so on. And so we, we took a trip up to um, up to the Eastern Cape Highlands. Now you talk about a bad memory, you know. I was, I've now forgotten what I, what I was going to tell you, except that I've now remembered. That... <laughs> 
we would actually go around a corner and I'd say to Chris, who was driving his truck, Chris, at the next corner there's a big, big tree and then there's a gate on the left. Now we're miles from anywhere. And you go around the corner and there's a big tree and a gate on the left. And he said, you know, fuck me, how do you remember this? I said, well, I've been here before. And w when I'm here, I'm so alerted to the moment of being here, call it mindfulness, if you like, that it burns into my memory. But I said, if you took me to Adley Street, I wouldn't even know I was in Adley Street because I want to get out of there as soon as you put me there. Mm. You put me on the Swift, I want to stay there the rest of my life. Mm. And every moment counts, and I remember. That helps the memory. Listen, yeah, it's been fantastic talking to you today. I've loved it, and I've... I didn't sleep last night because the mosquito is killing me. But also because I didn't know, I didn't know how, what I would ask you. Funnily enough, I didn't know. I was sitting in my bed thinking, what am I going to ask him? And then something said to me, relax. Ask him the first question and the rest will come. And I think it did. Thank you very much. I think we've both been honest with each other. Yeah. Uh, we've put on the table where we are, where we come from. Yeah. We've put on the table our own limitations and our own frailties. We, we took a fairly long time, but um, there is a part two and a part three and a part four. If you want to come back, you're very welcome. <laughs> we, can, we can do it all over again and talk about other shit. <laughs>